So uh, if you uh, don't have a Bible, we'll have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. Uh, we also have some physical Bibles scattered around the room, the little racks beneath the seats. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, don't have one that you can call your own, uh, take one of those home. Uh, we believe that uh, God uses his word for all kinds of incredibly important things, but chief among those important things is that he uses it to reveal himself to his people. Like we want you to deeply know God. We want everything in and around and about your life to be defined by that knowing of him. And so uh, if the scriptures are what he uses to, to do that in your heart and life, then, well, it just seems like a really dumb idea to not be pressing into him as much as possible. And so we can fix that. Um, so we returned to our Corinthian series last week. Uh, we had taken almost three months off, but now it's time to, you know, now we're back and all. And, and so for the uninitiated, maybe uh, you, you weren't here around for the first part bulk of this series, I guess. First um, Corinthians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to an incredibly young church in the Greek city of Corinth. Um, and by young, I mean that it's likely that no one in the Corinthian church had been a follower of Jesus for more than about five years by this point. Uh, we think that everyone's pretty immature. Um, we, we think that because Paul started the church there. He was one of the first people to preach the gospel in Corinth. All right, And he was there for about a year and a half, 18-ish months. And then he, we think that this letter was written about two to three years after he left to go on to to start churches in other places. And so really, we're talking about somewhere between four and five-ish years between the time that Paul first stepped foot into Corinth and started preaching the gospel. And so unless people have been, unless there's been like a lot of transfer growth from other locations, it's just the truth that everybody in Corinth is probably a baby Christian, a young believer. And so uh, as there's not a lot of spiritually mature folks running around, not a lot of gray hairs, we can say it that way, all right? And so, as you can probably imagine, that led to some problems. All right? It led to some issues. Uh, there's a lot of syncretism going on. All right? So uh, Corinth was an incredibly pluralistic city, and so there was a lot of stuff being pulled in from every angle into the culture of the church. And so it's really, really hard to distinguish between the culture of the church and those who have been born into this new kingdom of God. It was really hard to distinguish between that culture and the culture of the rest of the city. All right? And that's a problem if you can't tell the difference between the two. Right? There should be a lot of similarities, but there should also be a lot of distinctions, right? And so the city of Corinth was an incredibly big deal in the ancient world. It was an administrative capital of its region. It had a port on each side of it, right? So there was a port uh, on this side, there was a port on this side, and everybody had to pass through Corinth to get from point A to point B. In fact, in Paul's day, they would literally roll ships over logs uh, across this little strait because it sits in the isthmus, which is a fun word to say, the Isthmus of Greece, right? And so now there's a channel there, and it looks really cool and impressive on a map if you pull it up, but, you know, they just did tree trunks back in the day. And so Corinth was a really big deal. There was a lot of cash flowing through town, a lot of people flowing through town. And in those environments, well, I mean, consumers are going to do what consumers are going to do, and capitalists are going to do what capitalists are going to do. And so there was a lot of options for sin, in fact, it was all over the place, and not just options for sin, but there were pagan temples all over the place. Corinth was as pluralistic as you could get in the, the first century, and, and a lot like our own culture today, they saw that as a badge of honor, right? They saw that as something they should be proud of, something that, that they should point to and, and celebrate about themselves, and 
And so Paul's approach throughout this, this letter was to this young church was to consistently call them back to the reality that God's kingdom looks entirely different, that there are otherworldly realities about God's kingdom. It's a kingdom that will appear backwards and upside down to all of the competing kingdoms on the fringe, right? And so, in fact, it's, it's almost sure to be mocked and ridiculed by those on the outside of the kingdom looking at it from the outside because it'll be seen by them as folly and as a stumbling block, we're told. In fact, that's a key characteristic of God's kingdom, is that those on the outside looking in don't know what to do with it and don't see it as a good thing and will revile. And so the question we started asking back in the fall was this, hey, hey do you think that was some kind of oversight by God? Like, do you think he came up with this really good plan in his office one day? And he's like, all right, son, Holy Spirit, I got this idea. We're going to do this. We're going to build a kingdom that looks like this, 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 and this. And in his great, wonderful plan, he just didn't have a clue that there would be cultures coming one day that didn't like it. That there would be some competing kingdoms in this world that, that didn't know how to make sense of it and didn't know how to process all the pieces and might, might, might just find it ridiculous. You think he had some oversight there? Failed to think through all the angles? Or did he maybe set up his kingdom to operate that way on purpose? And the answer that we've clearly seen throughout this letter is, yeah, yeah, I, I think his kingdom is set up to operate that way on purpose. It is intentionally upside down, and it's upside down precisely because no one, I mean absolutely no one, could ever position themselves or posture themselves into a way where they can earn their place in his good kingdom. The only way that kingdom citizenship can be attained is through hearts that have been changed by God to love him and his good kingdom. Why? Because he will not share his glory with another. He won't do it. Which means that as, even as believers, even as believers that we will consistently find ourselves in moments where our inherited kingdom and God's kingdom meet with dissonance. We'll continually find ourselves in, in places, in moments where, where the culture and the, the worldview that we were born into comes into direct conflict with the culture and the worldview that we were being reborn into. But, but we don't have to look at those moments with frustration. I think they can actually be moments of, that strengthen our trust in, in who God is and what he's doing. And so the question that we've been kind of disciplining ourselves to ask whenever we come to these moments of dissonance, whenever we find ourselves in, in the upside-down realities of his kingdom, we, we, we simply ask the question, okay, but is it beautiful, right? Is it good? Is it true? Does it have other, you know, eternal value in an otherwise fading world? And if the answers to those questions are yes, well, then we can take the next step with confidence because we trust that God is building a better kingdom than the ones we happen to see in front of us, right? So we made it to chapter 11 by now. Last week, 
Paul began an effort to, to begin applying uh, what we would call an others-focused posture to uh, others-focused posture of service, right? Sacrificial service. Uh, to, he began applying it to several categories uh, 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 across you know the life of the church. Things that happen in the normal gathering and regular rhythms of the gathered church. And and so he spoke last week specifically to gender roles. Um, Paul didn't say anything new though. He says he, he called us to look at our posture first and foremost as an act of obedience to God. In spite of what the world around us is trying to argue and posture itself and, and try to uh, say is good and right, we, we walk in obedience to what God said, right? Especially when it's ridiculed by those who don't understand how God's kingdom operates. But then secondly, secondly, Paul's point last week was to, to show that our posture is to go looking for a way to serve others and point those outside of the kingdom to the otherworldly beauty of God's good kingdom. In other words, we never settle for temporary prizes. We aim for eternal ones. Always aim for eternal ones. But then Paul wrapped up verse 16 last week by, by making it incredibly clear that, that there is zero room for contentiousness within the church of Christ. Contentious is just another word for argumentative. It, it means to go looking for, uh, for trouble or to create conflict where there, where there isn't any. And what we saw is that God's people don't do contentious. We, we don't do contentious. We don't do self-promotion or positioning. We do self-sacrifice. That's what he's called us to. We do whatever shows off Jesus as transcendently better than anything this world could ever dream up. And that brings us to verse 17 of chapter 11. Paul's ready to shift here to another, another others-focused posture that plays out in the local church. And so in verse 17, he says this, But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. So let's call time out there. All right, so uh, Paul started out uh, last week in verse 1 commending the Corinthian church for a couple of things. You remember that? He, he kind of congratulates them a little bit, celebrates some good things. Uh, and the first one was pretty much that they're praying for him. They remember him constantly. All right? And so uh, they're, 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 they seem to be praying for Paul on a regular basis. Another thing he commended them for uh, in verse 1 was that they were keeping up some of the traditions that had been handed down to them. Um, but here... Not a lot of commending, right? He says, here, I don't commend you. So I made the statement last week that a church ceases to be a church whenever everybody in the room is gunning for their own agendas and self-exaltation. Um, but I, I, don't, I don't think I made that claim out of nowhere. I, I didn't just make that up. Um, the, the word church here in verse 18 is the word we've talked about before. It's the word ecclesia. Ecclesia, ecclesia. We talked about that word a lot recently, actually. It has an incredibly specific meaning. Ecclesia literally means a gathering. But it's not just a random group of people who happen to find themselves in the same place at the same time. It's not just some random group who kind of happens to find themselves in the same room. And ecclesia is a gathering with a unified purpose. Often in the, the Greek world, it was used to talk about political groups. There's a unified identity 
an agenda. There's a specific cause to a specific body of people. It would be incredibly poor use of vocabulary to try to use the word ecclesia to talk about a bunch of people with divergent agendas. It's an improper use of the word. That's not a church, that's a crowd. Those are different things. So I'll repeat what I said last week. The, the church ceases to be the church when everybody in the room is jockeying for position and doing everything they can to push their individual cause to the front. You got a crowd of people with divergent views. You don't have a church. And Paul has gotten word that there are divisions all over the place in Corinth because he knows the church and he you know, he trusts the one bringing him the report. It's an easy accusation to believe. But there's actually a really interesting third reason for Paul to believe it, and that's found in verse 19. Look at it. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Okay, so even though Paul has spent massive chunks of this letter so far, making it crystal clear that, that, that the church doesn't fight like the rest of the world, right? even though the main point of even this little section here is to, to shut down any attempts at pettiness or factions that have formed, Paul carves out an exception here for some of this division to actually be labeled as good. See, apparently, there are some hills worth dying on. What does he say in 19? For there must be factions among you. Why? In order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. So many of the factions that had formed in the Corinthian church had done so over bad theology and selfish motives. You don't fix division by ignoring bad theology and selfish motives. Right? You don't just act like they're not there in the hopes of pursuing unity. Paul argues here that in God's sovereign wisdom, he has allowed some of this division so that those who are genuine have the opportunity to endure and rise to the surface. It's an endurance-filled contending for what is right and good. So then, um, what separates the good from the bad then? Right? Like, how do we tell the difference between good contending and bad contending, good divisions and bad divisions. Well, I would argue that we we need to look at both the source of the division and how the parties play the game. I think both of those matter. The source of the division and how the parties play the game. We'll start with the source. Um, Not all division is produced out of selfish motives. Sometimes, sometimes division is produced out of a desire to honor God and be obedient when no one else in the room is willing to, right? Right? The one guy that says, no, no, this isn't right. I'm going to do what God's word says. When no one else wants to run that route. That's a divisive moment. Parties are separating there. That's a good thing. It's often the case in situations that have been unhealthy for a long time that one group decides to try and fix things. Um, Those who didn't care about fixing things, they don't see that fixing as a good thing. And they're going to be unhappy about it. All those who prefer the unhealthy way of doing things tend to look less than fondly at the faithful. 
But the source of the division is far from the only thing to pay attention to. How the parties play the game is also an incredibly important thing. It's quite telling. Um, the, the kind of endurance-filled contending that honors the Lord, it lacks any trace at all of pettiness or contentiousness. See, it's entirely possible to fight for something that seems to be a good thing in a way that dishonors Jesus. You ever been in a situation like that? Man, I have. It's entirely possible to fight for a good thing in a way that completely dishonors the Lord. There are certainly worth hills, you know, hills worth dying on, but God's people, the ones that are genuine, we're told, they fight differently than those who don't know Jesus. Period. There's no room for contentiousness or pettiness within the church. They, they contend for what is good in a way that pursues unity, in a way that makes things better, not worse. So if you find yourself, hypothetically, I'm sure it'll never happen to us, if you find yourself hypothetically in a situation where you've got to figure out, is, is this division a good thing or a bad thing? If you lack those qualities, making things better rather than worse, pursuing unity rather than division, chances are pretty good that you're out of bounds. You're operating out of selfish motives rather than Christ-like ones. In Corinth, well, they had a lot of selfish motives. They had a lot of examples of the selfish variety. And so in verse 22, Paul says this. Or verse 20, excuse me. It says, When you come together, it is not the Lord's supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Okay, so Paul points to their practice of the Lord's Supper, and he, and he tells them flat out, Hey, yeah, yeah, what you're doing there? Not fair to call that the Lord's Supper. And we're, in fact, we're not going to call that the Lord's Supper anymore at all. That's not what you're doing. And why does it no longer qualify? Because everybody's pushing for their own agenda. That's what shuts it down. It's like lunchtime down at the middle school. We got one group over here. You got one group over there. This group doesn't talk to this group. And they also don't talk to group C because this, you know, group C was nice one time to group B, right? You ever been in a situation like that? How long has it been since you were in middle school? <laughs> Folks are rushing to the table to eat everything before others show up. It's a free-for-all. One dude's getting drunk, we're told. It's an absolute mess. It's an absolute mess. And that mess is caused first and foremost out of an I'm going to get what's mine, forget everybody else kind of mindset. Paul points to that mess and says, hey, what you're doing there? Mm -mm. We're not going to call that the Lord's Supper anymore. That's not what that is. And it falls short of calling it the Lord's Supper for a couple of really big reasons. One, because that's not how the first one played out. Um, the, the first Lord's Supper started with Jesus washing everybody's feet. And it ended 
with Jesus praying for unity for everybody and that others would know that they're his followers by their love for one another. See, what's going on in Corinth fails to copy the model of what had been handed down to them. It fails to copy the model in every possible way. But here's the problem. It's not just the model that we're worried about here. It also fails completely in the purpose of the Lord's Supper. It fails to copy the model, and it fails to copy the purpose of the Lord's Supper. And that's what Paul gets into starting in verse 23. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. All right, um, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Okay, so sitting in a, in a room filled with, with people who are either about to betray him or desert him, right? Jesus picks up a, a, a piece of bread and, and he says, this is my body which is broken for you. And then everybody watch him tear it to pieces, right? Just a few hours after he says those words, it'll stop being a cute little illustration and it'll play out in very real life. His body was literally broken for them. He was beaten. He was mocked and cursed at. He was spat upon and had pieces of his beard torn out. The skin was flayed from his back. And then he was nailed to a stake in the ground, hung in the air, and left to suffocate as everybody watched and jeered. His body was broken for them. And then after the bread, Jesus picked up a cup of wine and said, this is the covenant, the new covenant of my blood. And listen, all throughout Jewish history, man, God's people were allowed to be close to God because their sin had been covered. It had been atoned for by a sinless sacrifice. A system that God instituted back in the Exodus called them to repeat and remember month after month, year after year, generation after generation. All throughout God's, the, the history of God's people, they were allowed to be close to God because their sin had been taken care of by another. Something else was continually offered up to pay the sin debt that stood between them. And month after month, year after year, generation after generation, there was never an end to those sacrifices because, because there was never an end to the sin that needed to be atoned for. The blood of bulls and goats was never sufficient to actually fix the problem. And so Jesus stepped up to be a final sacrifice, one last spotless lamb. His blood was spilled as a new covenant, a, a, a once and for all atonement that finally and forever dealt with the problem of our sin. That all those who would place their faith in this spotless lamb would be forever fully reconciled to God by his good grace. See, what we're talking about here, Jesus' death on the cross is by a landslide the most selfless act of service in all of history. 
What we're talking about here, Jesus' death on the cross is the most others-focused act of love in all of history. And then Jesus gave us the Lord's Supper for the specific purpose of helping us remember what it is that he has done for you. Hear me, it is impossible to come to the Lord's Supper table with selfish motives and still call it the Lord's Supper. It misses the model. It misses the purpose. And to press on and continue celebrating that something, even though it's a tradition that's been handed down to us, to continue on and uh, pressing on doing that something in the same way without considering what it is that he has actually done, well, it, it ends up misrepresenting the gospel. It ends up painting the wrong picture of what Jesus has done. And we're also going to learn that apparently it's a pretty dangerous game to play. Look at verse 27. Paul says this, Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. Verse 32, but when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Okay, so verses 27 through 29 here, one of those texts that in the Bible that often get made a real big mess of. Um, so, so, so what does it mean then to eat and drink in an unworthy manner? Well, often people you know, try to argue that sin in your life is what it is that makes you un- unworthy. I mean, that sounds like the pop spirituality that we have floating around in our culture. I mean, it gets passed off as Christian all the time, sure. Two problems with that logic, though. One, um, it completely undersells the sin that each and every one of us are, you know, have in us. Um, if the presence of sin disqualifies someone from celebrating the Lord's Supper, then literally no one in here, myself especially, is qualified to take the Lord's Supper. None of us. By, def- by default, we are all infinitely guilty. Um, and so, like, everybody here, including myself, would need to set up the Lord's Supper table and just stare at it the whole time hoping that God doesn't kill us all for looking too hard. The other much, much bigger problem with that logic is that it completely misunderstands the gospel. Completely misunderstands the gospel. Sure, salvation comes by grace through faith in Jesus, but the picture that Jesus gave us to remember what he has done on the cross on our behalf, that has to be earned, right? Nonsense. It's absolute nonsense. I mean, you're going you're to need to go ahead and get some things in your life figured out before we'll let you come and celebrate God's free gift of grace. Run along now until you get some more of your life figured out. But what's the context that all this is sitting on? Petty divisions within the church body, right? Paul's been working up to this point by talking about petty divisions within the church body. And talking about self-exaltation and agendas that, that cause factions and fails to understand the gospel as it applies to the community of the church, right? 
And so Paul's point here is the core level failure to understand what Jesus has already done for you. And so he calls him to repentance. Now, does, does that call to repentance and the call to remembering the gospel, can that extend to some other things in our life beyond just you know, the unity of the body of Christ? I think it does. I think there's some things to apply, you know, to fold out from there and apply to some other areas to, to repent and remember. Absolutely. So it's not wrong to call people to repent and remember over everything in their life, not just you know, stuff specific to the church. I think we can be just as guilty of approaching the table with unrepentant sin in other areas of our life. So while Paul's main focus here is unity in the body, the call for repentance and remembering certainly extends out from there to every other area of our lives. I believe that. I have confidence in that. And the warning here, the warning here for not approaching the, the table without this repentance and remembering is pretty significant, right? Paul says that many of you are weak and ill and some have even died. Like, what do we do with that? Well, to be clear, we're not Corinth. God has made no such promise to handle our lack of repentance in the exact same way he did with them. God didn't show up here one day and, and start knocking some people off because we didn't do the Lord's Supper right. But we do need to see that it's important enough for God to choose to discipline Corinth that way. We should never miss that. And God could very well choose to handle it that way again. So it's probably not wise to test him on it. The Bible is crystal clear that God disciplines those whom he loves. So he's not punishing Corinth. He's calling them to finally see what they're supposed to see. He engages them in order to wake them up to, to some things that are incredibly important that they do need to repent of and remember. And I promise you, it is far better to be disciplined by the Lord than to be condemned along with the world. But it also seems like a pretty smart idea to judge ourselves rightly before we have to be judged. Both are true. So Paul says in verse 33, So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About other things, I will give directions when I come. So the way we practice the Lord's Supper matters. It matters. And I know that many of you grew up in a more Catholic context, so I probably need to clarify that. Uh, we, we don't say specific things and gesture specific things in order to, to, to enact some kind of holy change in the elements. And we don't repeat certain procedures in order to, to make the meal more effective for, for grace in one way or another. No, the way we practice the Lord's Supper matters because it points everyone, both Christians and non-Christians alike, to the good news of the King who laid his own life down for us. And we don't want to get that picture wrong. 
We, we pay attention to how we practice the Lord's Supper because we never want the illustration of the gospel to be something other than what Jesus has actually done for us. We don't want people to be confused. And so simple things like, like waiting on everybody to get here or the act of serving everyone, that, that matters for us. The fact that we intentionally slow down and call you to repentance and call you to remembrance before rushing into this stuff, it matters. The way we schedule things today so that we could have the opportunity to hang out and enjoy each other's company immediately after taking this Lord's Supper together. It's on purpose and it matters. And so how do we respond to God's word this morning? What do we do with this? Well, if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus yet, you can respond in a couple of ways. Firstly, this meal, it's a family deal. It's a family thing. Um, participating in it is an act of proclaiming that you belong to the family. And so if you're not a part of the family yet, then, then it's not for you. We love you, but... It's just not for you. There's nothing magical about this stuff. Um, I can tell you that this is maybe the last time that we're going to use these little jobbers. We're about to run out, and I'm not buying anymore. It's cough syrup and styrofoam. There's, there's nothing magical about this. But for those of us who love Jesus, who have trusted in his word and his work who have placed our hope in his work on the cross on our behalf to make payment for our sin this meal is special so if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian we love you we're glad you're here but listen you need to abstain your role is to watch us this morning to watch us through this picture continue to place our hope in an all-sufficient Jesus. But there's a second way that the non-Christian can respond. You can place your hope and trust in Jesus too. See, the Bible teaches that we have all sinned and fallen short of God's glory and that we are owed the penalty for that sin. Sometimes the Bible calls that penalty death. Sometimes the Bible calls that penalty hell. It's never a good thing. It's always a really terrible thing. But it's always a rightly owed thing, no matter what descriptor is being given to that penalty for sin at different times. The Bible is crystal clear that the penalty is justly owed to us. But the Bible also teaches that God is rich in mercy and that he loves you with a great love. That even when you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, God is making you alive by his grace through Christ. So Jesus lived the sinless life that neither you nor I are capable of living. He died on the cross as an, as an innocent substitute to make full and final payment for your sin. He was raised again from the dead as a vindication of his perfect and sufficient righteousness. And now as the king who conquered both sin and death. He calls on you in this very moment to respond to him in repentance and in faith, to turn away from your sin and to turn to him as Savior and Lord. And you can do that in this very moment. You can respond to Jesus this morning. I'm going to sing. I got to play guitar instead of stand down there, but I, man, I'd love to talk to you. I'd love to be helpful. If you want to talk about it, let's talk. Have a good time with it. If you're here this morning and you're already a follower of Jesus, 
we respond today with this good picture that Jesus has seen fit to give to us. It's a time to remember. Before that, it's, it's a time to repent. Maybe it's sins within the body. And we've pursued contentious things. And those things need to die at the cross. Maybe it's some other area of your life that bulldozed your way through. Repent and remember this morning. I'm going to pray and we're going to sing another song. We're going we're to sing that song and give you some time in between to allow you to do some business with the Lord this morning. Whatever that looks like for you. And then after we sing, we'll open this up and we'll hit the go button. But whoever you are and however God is calling you to respond this morning, let's respond together right now. Music team.